All right, well tonight, as you can see on the screen, we are introducing the book, Letter to the Philippians. And I am very excited about tonight. I've been looking forward to finally getting back into some sequential exposition. I feel like I've been doing a lot of topical preaching lately, um, but I'm excited to get back into uh, going verse by verse through a text. Let me pause just for a second because my... How do we do this here? My iPad is shutting off on me. All right, hold on. There we go. All right, back at it. We're, we're back in action here. Now, I'm sure this little letter uh, of Philippians is a treasure to many of you. Um, if you've never read it before, you're new to the faith, I am thrilled to introduce it to you. Now, I know we're not supposed to have favorites when it comes to the Bible, but this little letter holds a very, very special place in my heart. Back in my first semester at Liberty, it was this letter that the Lord used to begin drawing me to Christ. If you would have asked me, I certainly would have claimed to have been a Christian during those days. But I was living hypocritically. I loved myself. I lived for myself. My life was about me and my glory. But eventually the Lord brought me to a a point of decision. I began to realize that I either needed to, to, to figure out what it really meant to follow Christ or just stop pretending and be honest about where I was actually at. So, I decided to start reading the scriptures myself. I went to the LU bookstore, bought a NLT Bible, one I could actually understand, and that night I opened it to Philippians and I started reading. Now, as a bit of a backstory here, I had always been afraid of death, like deathly afraid of death, right? And it was ever since I'd been a kid. I would obsess about it. Um, After everybody would go to sleep, I would kind of lay awake in my bed at night thinking about death, kind of morbid. And even though I would have claimed that I was going to heaven, I was raised in the church. I made a profession of faith when I was 12. Even though I claimed that I was going to go to heaven, I was still terrified when I let myself think about death very long. Now, back to that night in my dorm, with my Bible open to Philippians, I read these words, and just for nostalgia's sake, I'm going to read from the NLT. Paul writes in chapter 1, verse 20, For I fully expect and hope that I will never be ashamed, but that I will continue to be bold for Christ as I have been in the past. And I trust that my life will bring honor to Christ whether I live or die. For to me, Living means living for Christ, and dying is even better. But if I live, I can do more fruitful work for Christ, so I really don't know which is better. I am torn between two desires. I long to go and be with Christ, which would be far better for me. But for your sakes, it's better that I continue to live. 
I was a 18 and a half, 19 year old, terrified of death my entire life. I read this phrase, dying is even better. He would rather die? Like, is he being serious? Or is that just something he said? Like a platitude. He longs to be with Christ. That's far better for him. Those statements that night blew me away. I knew at that moment Paul had something that I did not have. And his words sent me on a journey that led me to the Savior. So this letter has a special place in my heart for that reason. And as I was thinking over the summer about what book to choose for us, what book that we would you know, be spending a lot of time in together, I was thinking that Philippians is a great book to equip us in this moment that we find ourselves in. As we're going to see tonight, Paul writes this book, I think, to help the Philippians stay joyfully focused on the mission. To be willing to be spent for Christ's sake on earth right now. To be even willing to die, if necessary, for the advancement of the gospel. And we know, we know, we know that persecution is coming for us here in the States. In some ways, opposition is already here. In the days ahead, we are going to need to have a clear view of the return of Christ, a transcendent hope, a hope that transcends this life to the next, a hope that's so real that we are willing to lay down our lives for the cause of Christ. And as we'll see, Paul's overarching desire in this letter is to put spiritual steel in the backbone of this incredible Philippian church. It's to help them fix their minds and hearts on Christ and to be laser-focused on His mission. And I perceive this is what we need too. And I'm so excited to see what the Lord is going to do in our hearts as a result of this precious letter, meditating on it week in and week out on Thursday nights. So you can think of tonight as a setup, really, for the rest of our study. What I want to do is give you a background of this church, kind of where it came from, what it looked like, what it was facing at the time that Paul wrote this letter, and kind of see some parallels to where we're at today. And hopefully tonight will be an introduction to this letter that will set us up for a fruitful study in the weeks to come. So where are we, where are we headed? What do, what do we know about this church? I'm just going to give you four features of the Philippian church that will be our framework for our study for the letter. It's kind of a background, but it's not just going to stay in the background. We're going to see the parallels to our situation and our hearts today. So we're going to look at four features of the Philippian church. And when you approach a study like this, kind of an introduction to a letter, you're gonna, you're, you want to kind of examine other places in Scripture where you 
can maybe find some data about that's going to inform the study of this, this letter. And one place that we want to go is we want to think through the book of Acts and think, okay, what's, what's in the book of Acts? What's there that's going to shed some light on this church and the setting of this letter? And thankfully, we're given some information about how this church started from the book of Acts. This church was planted by Paul. That's really the first feature we're going to draw out. The church was planted by Paul and his team. And that's found in Acts chapter 16. And it's an absolutely riveting account. And uh, I would definitely suggest that you go back this week and read it carefully. But let me just give you the highlights. Okay? Paul is on his second missionary journey. That's what it's called. His second missionary journey. He's been led by the Spirit in a vision to this city, the city of Philippi. And he's not alone. He's not traveling alone. He's got a team with him. Silas is with him. We hear about him in this story in Acts 16. But so are two other very important people, people that we need to make, take note of right now. Young Timothy is with this team, and so is Luke, who happens to be the author of Acts. More about him in a minute. As we study the letter to the Philippians, we're going to hear Timothy come up a couple different times. He's a co-sender of the letter, and he's going to resurface again as an example for the Philippians. And Paul's going to say, I want to send him to you eventually. So Timothy's a a crucial figure. He He was significant in the establishment of the church, even though Acts doesn't really mention him that much in that account. The Philippians knew him. They respected him. He was there with Paul when this church was planted. So when this team gets to Macedonia, that's the region that Philippi is in. Macedonia is the region. When they get there, they eventually land at the port city of Philippi. They find a place of prayer where they encounter a woman named Lydia, a wealthy Jewish merchant. She receives the gospel. The Lord opens her heart to to understand and receive the gospel. And she's generous from day one. And this generosity is a trait that will characterize this church for years to come. She wants the team to use her place, her house, for ministry. So she opens her home and it becomes a gathering place for the church. Or we might say it's a, it's a colony of the kingdom of Jesus right in the heart of a Roman colony. The city of Philippi. It was known as Little Rome. But things began to to heat up in Philippi uh, as demons took note of Paul and his team. A demonically possessed slave girl began to harass the team for days as they tried to do ministry in the city. And eventually, Paul just got fed up with it. And he cast the demon out of this girl. And her owners were not happy about that because they use this poor girl to make money by predicting people's fortunes. So, when you start messing with people's pocketbooks, their idols, they get angry, and they came after Paul and Silas. They had them arrested, beaten, imprisoned. And long story short, 
An earthquake freed Paul and Silas, uh, but they voluntarily stayed in the jail. They managed to keep the other prisoners in the jail, and this all led to the conversion of the jailer and his family. The next day, the officials kind of sheepishly released Paul and Silas after they realized that they had broken their own law by beating a Roman citizen that was uncondemned. And eventually, Paul and Silas were released. They were sent on their way, asked to leave the city by the officials, because I think the officials didn't know what they were dealing with, uh, with these two. Get out of here. But they didn't leave before they went back by Lydia's house to encourage the church. All right, so, recap. The church was made up of at least a wealthy merchant, Lydia. It's, um, her whole family converted to Christ. So, a wealthy merchant and her family. A jailer and his family. And potentially, a previously possessed slave girl. So, they had watched their leader joyfully suffer for the gospel... And he even shamed the legal authorities. So I would say this newly planted church, this fledgling assembly, was off to a good start. And it appears that Paul left it in really good hands. Okay, so that leads us to our second feature of this church. This church was initially shepherded by Luke, we think. This church was initially shepherded by Luke. Now, admittedly, that's an inference. Okay? So, give you that up front. Can't be dogmatic about this. But here's why people think this. Remember that I told you that Paul had picked up Luke in Troas. It was right before he came to Philippi. If you read that carefully in Acts 16.10, you'll notice the language shifts from third person to first person. Acts 16.10. And what that means then is Luke was talking about Paul and his team in they language. Third person. They. They were doing this. They traveled here. They traveled there. They did this. But then in 16.10, the language shifts to we. And us. It says, immediately we sought to go into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. That's a shift. And that shift means that the author is now with this team when he wasn't before. So, the author's Luke. So, Luke joins the mission right as they are going into Philippi. Now, the same thing happens again, but in reverse, at the end of this story about Philippi. After they leave the city, Luke doesn't keep using the we language, like you would expect if he was traveling with this team. But he uses they language, again in chapter 17, verse 1. They left and did this. So this indicates that that Luke, he's not with the team, that's for sure, when they left. And it it indicates that he's likely left behind to keep shepherding and teaching this church. Well, how long did he stay there? We don't know. But he could have led this church for up to eight years. Eight years. So where are we getting that number from? It's because eight years later, when Paul comes back to Philippi in Acts chapter 20, Acts 20 verse 6, Paul comes back to Philippi, Luke shifts back again to the first person. He says, we sailed away from Philippi after the days of unleavened bread. 
So it's very likely, not certain, but it's very likely that Paul had left Luke in this church as one of its leaders for that eight-year period and picked him back up on his way to Jerusalem. Now, you're thinking, okay, that's kind of cool, but what, why is that significant? Well, because it helps us understand why the church flourished as a missional church. Because it was in good hands, it had good leadership. And our third feature about this church is that it actually is a, is a healthy church. It, it flourished as a missional church. Once Paul left, it appears this church continued to grow both numerically and in health. And there's some, some evidences here that, we, that this is the case. And we see this evidence initially by this church's incredible generosity toward Paul, basically from day one. All right? We'll call that their early generosity toward Paul as one of the evidences that this church was focused on the mission. And I wrote down some references there for you, and I'm going I'm to reference those as we go along here. But in Acts 17, after they finished in Philippi, Paul left that city for Thessalonica. And he and his team preached the gospel there. And like Philippi, got a little heated too, as the unbelieving Jews got mad, and then they went after the team. But Paul tells us in this letter in Philippians chapter 4 that the Philippians supported his ministry while he was there. Okay, So I don't know if you're in Philippians. You can look in, open to Philippians 4. Paul reminds them, kind of drawing back, that, that they, had, they had supported him from the very beginning. He says in chapter 4, verse 14, he says, And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. So Paul tells us that from the very beginning, from the very beginning, they had been generous supporters of gospel ministry, even when no other churches supported them. And then a few months later, the team landed in Corinth to do more ministry over in Acts 18. We see that there. And this little church in Philippi, they just kept sending money to Paul so Paul could keep going. Over in 2 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 11, Paul reminds the Corinthians that he was enabled to serve the Corinthians by, quote, robbing other churches by accepting support from them. So he's trying to make a point to the Corinthians. I robbed other churches by accepting their support so I could serve you free of charge, he says. And in particular, he tells us who it was that he robbed. He says it was the brothers or that, that supported him. You know, he's being hyperbolic there. He, the, the brothers who came from Macedonia, he says, that's Philippi, those brothers supplied my need. 
So this little Philippian church kept Paul going virtually the day after it was planted. But they didn't just support gospel ministry with money, as important as that is. They zealously labored alongside Paul in sharing the gospel in Philippi too. And that's another evidence that this church continued to flourish as a missional church. They were zealous in laboring for the gospel and evangelizing the city. We see this throughout the letter of Philippians, but it's most clear over in chapter 4, kind of in a backdoor way. And in this text, he's actually, he's actually telling two women to reconcile. And he's saying, reconcile your differences so you can get back on mission, like they were when Paul was with them. He describes these women as folks who have, quote, labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers. You see that? Chapter 4, verse 3. These women, Yodi and Syntyche, he wants to agree in the Lord, verse 2. He tells his true companion to help these women, verse 3. Notice the, their description. These women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel. Together with another dude, with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers. So what's he saying? He's saying from day one, the church was zealous for evangelism. These two women and a man named Clement worked with Paul's team to evangelize in the city when Paul was there. And it's another evidence that this church had continued to flourish as a missional church. And yet another of these evidences is the fact that eventually the church appointed its own leadership. So we could call that the eventual establishment of leadership in the Philippian church. So that means that somewhere along the way, maybe through the guidance of Luke, this church saw leaders raised up and appointed. And that's a great sign that a church is growing in health. And we see that this has happened in the very first verse of the letter when Paul writes here. Paul addresses this letter not just to the saints, which is normal for him to do. He addresses this letter also to the overseers and the deacons. Now, overseer is just another title for pastor or elder. Paul's indicating that at the time of his writing, the church had established to the point to where it had it appointed qualified and faithful leaders, both elders, or, or in this case, overseers, and deacons. And that's a great evidence that this church was flourishing as a missional church and growing because it had a, a leadership, and they were appointed. And finally, the last evidence that this church had continued to flourish is that they had continued to be generous, even up to the point of Paul's writing this letter. So we could say that another evidence is their continued generosity over the years. They weren't just kind of zealous in the first months of their new church plant. This persisted over a number of years. About six years after the church had been planted, they gave yet another donation. 
And this time, it was to help relieve the suffering of the Jerusalem church. So you've got a Gentile church. It's giving of its means to this Jerusalem church. And at this point, you're probably thinking, daggone, this is a pretty, pretty, wealthy, pretty wealthy church to be given all this, all this, this funding to uh, missions and uh, relief of the poor in Jerusalem. This church must be loaded, must be full of Lydia's. But it was actually the opposite. In 2 Corinthians 8, we learn that the Philippians were actually an impoverished church. In fact, it seemed like Paul did not want them to give. What? <laughs> A missionary who's not looking for money? He, Paul didn't want them to give. That's what it appears to be from, from first, in 2 Corinthians 8. He didn't want them to give so they could take care of themselves. But they begged to be part of helping the Jewish church. Paul says they gave beyond their means of their own accord, voluntarily and joyfully. What an incredible example. Now, if that's not enough, about three years after that, it seems they gave one of their largest gifts yet to Paul. And it came at a time that he needed it most during his imprisonment in Rome. And we see evidence of this in, in chapter 4, verse 10 and 18. This church raised the money, and then they sent it through one of their own leaders named Epaphroditus. We're going to learn more about him as we work through the letter. He's mentioned as well in Philippians chapter 2. So they sent this money to Paul, through Epaphroditus. And this dude, on his way to give Paul the money, he got really, really, really sick. He almost died. But he kept pressing on because he knew that Paul desperately needed his funds. So it probably goes without saying, but Paul was absolutely overwhelmed by their love by their generosity, and by their commitment to him all these years. As you read this letter, you're going to hear a lot of partnership language. Paul's going to be talking about their partnership in the gospel and his gratitude for their help. And you can kind of start understanding why at this point. They've been radically generous all these years in their poverty to see the gospel going forward. And it began with Lydia opening her home for gospel ministry and all the way to the point of Epaphras being willing to die to get Paul the help he needed. This is a committed church. Now, as healthy as this church was, it was not immune from threats from the outside or even problems from within. Okay, healthy church is not a perfect church. So reading between the lines in this letter, it seems like part of the church sending Epaphras or Epaphroditus to Paul 
was to request help for the crises they were facing. Again, I admit, I'm reading between the lines a little bit here, but I know how these things work in the life of a ministry. As we're going to see, the threats were coming on several fronts to this church. But they all have one thing in common. And it's to distract the Philippians from staying on mission. From continuing to share the gospel, from continuing to get after growing in Christ. So we could say it like this, this fourth feature, and we'll spend some time here. The church faced threats that distracted them from the mission. And that makes sense, doesn't it? You have a missional church that's in their poverty, laying it all out there for Christ. It should and will get attacked by Satan. Satan does not want this. He wants to distract them, discourage them from the mission. And he is actively attempting to do the same to us today. Right here at Timberlake, right here in Boundless. So how so? What are some of these threats? And how, do they, how are they threatening the mission? Well, one of the first things we see that the church was facing was increased hostility, increased opposition from unbelievers in the city. And you see this over at the end of chapter 1. If you pick it up in verse 27 here, he says, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation, and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in Him, but also suffer for His sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. So his point is, from that we can tell, that there is increased opposition this, this confronting this church. And this opposition was tempting the church toward fear. And understandably so, right? But the persecutions may have also had an economic impact too. And an economic impact on an already impoverished church is not a good thing. Some may have lost jobs as a result of following Christ. Or the secular merchants in this port town may have refused to hire those narrow-minded Christians that didn't worship their gods. And this, no doubt, tempted the Philippians to back off their convictions, to stop sharing the gospel with those around them for fear of blowback. And the threat of opposition hits us too, doesn't it? We see the temptation to be afraid rise in our own hearts when the Lord allows the heat to be when the Lord allows the heat to be turned up. Even in the last two years, the opposition has become more and more severe, more acute against the true church right here in America. 
And opposition tempts us to cower in fear and to stop sharing the gospel. We're tempted to think that this life is ultimate. We're tempted to think we've got to preserve it. And so we're quiet. But Paul wants to make sure that we realize nothing can thwart the gospel mission. He says in chapter 1, his imprisonment is actually advancing the gospel. And not only that, not only is it advancing through him, but something else is happening. The Christians around him are becoming more emboldened by his example to share the gospel without fear too. Why do you think he shared that? With the Philippians. He's wanting to embolden them. In fact, Paul wants to make sure that we know that he is not afraid to die. Death is actually far better than life now, he says. In chapter 2, he highlights that Christ was willing to die to stay obedient to the mission. In chapter 3, he even reminds them that their own Epaphroditus was willing to risk his life, he says, for the sake of the mission. So why is he highlighting all of that? Because Paul wants to make sure that we know that opposition from unbelievers and even the threat of death is nothing to be scared of. He wants to keep us sharing the gospel and being willing to die for the mission if necessary. And Paul's going to help us find courage in this letter. He's going to put steel in our backbones as he deepens our convictions. He's going to come back again and again to our mindset, to how we think. He'll direct us toward Christ, toward Christ's return, toward fixating on that. Paul will even address our anxieties directly toward the end of this letter in chapter 4. He'll come back again and again to our thinking, our convictions, our mindset. And he directs us toward Christ to put that steel in our backbones. And he's doing it so that when opposition comes, we won't cower in fear. So that we'll stand in the power of Christ. So that's a major threat in this letter. Threat to them, threat to us. And if that wasn't enough, the church was also facing the threat of legalism. or we could say, of adding to the gospel of grace. Apparently, a group of professing Christians, Jewish Christians, were called Judaizers. They were on the verge of infiltrating the Philippian church as they had done to so many of Paul's churches. They plagued the churches Paul planted, coming behind him after he left to try to get the Gentiles to submit to the law of Moses. They subtly added to the gospel. And they did that by teaching that righteousness was both by faith and by keeping the law. Instead of just by faith alone. It's like, yes, we're preaching Christ, we're preaching crucified Jesus, but it's by faith and by law keeping. If you want to be a Christian, you have to submit to circumcision and to the Torah, keeping Torah. It can't, faith alone is not enough. 
Paul passionately warns the Philippians about these, this group. He calls them dogs, and they're not good, right? So he, he warns them about this group. Chapter 3, he knows that if we add to the message, if we pervert it, both for ourselves and for, for those that we're sharing it with, the, go- the gospel loses its saving power. And so, what he does in chapter 3 is he refreshes us with a vision of the true gospel. Of being found righteous in Christ alone. He tells us that anything else we're tempted to trust in is absolute garbage compared to the worth and sufficiency of Christ. we got nothing compared to that. So all of our hope has to be bound up in Him alone. Nothing can be compared to the worth and the sufficiency of Christ. And now, he says, we get the privilege of knowing Him intimately and even suffering for His sake. Now, this temptation toward legalism wasn't just impacting the Philippians. It's hit all of us at some point in one way or another. We're all tempted to base our relationship with God on something other than Christ at times. But Paul won't let us do that. He's going to remind us of the sweet privilege and joy of being found in Christ and clothed with His righteousness alone. And He'll teach us to learn to rejoice daily in that. And in fact, Paul says this, he makes a very interesting statement at the beginning of chapter 3. You know, he's pounding us to rejoice in the Lord. Then he says, to write the same things to you is no trouble for me and is safe. Safe for you. It's safe to keep your joy lively in Christ alone. That's safety for you. In other words, it's going to protect you from the temptation of legalism. To actively rejoice in Christ alone. Paul knows that a vision of the true gospel will inflame us to mission. We'll grow only when we realize that Christ has already laid hold of us. He says that in chapter 3. We're not performing to get Him to like us. We're not evangelizing to just kind of get the guilt off our back. We're going to share this life-giving message, this word of life to others. The more we rejoice in it, our hope is fixed in it, and we know what's coming as a result of it. And so, legalism is a threat to the church then, it's a threat to the church today, both to our souls and to the mission. Now, alongside this legalistic group was the opposite and apparently much more popular extreme. And this also threatened the Philippians. And it's the threat of worldliness. It's a threat of worldliness. We see this toward the end of chapter 3. It's like he kind of pivots off of the, the, the legalist to the, world, to the worldly folk. In verse 17, Paul encourages the Philippians to keep their eyes on faithful people. Not on those who have their minds set on earthly things, he says. Those who idolize pleasure, since their God is their belly. Those who idolize pleasure, those who walk as enemies of the cross of Christ, meaning they don't like suffering, they don't like that message. 
They like the ease of pleasure in what the world can give them. Paul talks about this threat at the tail end of chapter 3. And boy, are we tempted with this one from every angle in our culture. We're tempted to buy into the world's vision of the good life that's sold to us on every YouTube ad. We're also tempted to think of life as fundamentally about the gratification of our internal desires. We're just about getting what we want. We think of it, life is about getting what we want, not about doing what's right, even if it costs us. We live in a hedonistic culture that's breathing down our necks in the church. If you don't believe me, watch how your heart responds the next time it doesn't get something it wants. Watch how discouraged you get when something in life is hard because you think life should be easy. When our growth in Christ gets tough, we want to quit. We want to throw in the towel. We want to take the path of least resistance. We don't like hard things because we often love pleasure. That's worldliness. And this worldly mindset will quickly distract us from the mission. And it will undermine our willingness to sacrifice for it. We're deceived into thinking that this world is our home and it's to be lived for. Which is why Paul tells us that our citizenship is in heaven and we await a Savior who's going to come back and then make this place our home. <laughs> because it's not our home yet. But see, Paul knows that God is at work in us He's going to complete his work in every genuine Christian. And Paul will teach us how to work hard. How to entrust ourselves to Christ and really grow. How to, quote, strain forward to what lies ahead. How to press on for more growth and not to give in to our self-gratifying worldly impulses. Because Paul knows that progress in the faith is also progress in joy. In joy. Paul says that he'd rather die and be with Christ, but I'll stay here for your progress and joy in the faith. Progress in growth means joy in your life. That's the true good life not the bill of goods that the world is trying to sell us through its ease and endless pleasure. As we grow, Paul says, we will, quote, shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, chapter 2. In other words, our lives will, be, will back up our message and we will bring glory to God in the midst of this crooked generation. It will impact the mission. But for the Philippians, perhaps the most subtle threat didn't come from the outside. From unbelievers, Judaizers, even the world. The most subtle threat 
the most deceptive, came from within. It came from a division springing up among two very faithful people. This fourth threat is division. Faced then and faced today. Some of the founding members of this church were at odds with each other. And the church may have been on the verge of a split. That's Yodia and Syntyche over in chapter 4, verse 2. Those two women were called out by name in the letter. Think about that. How many times is Paul just like calling out women in the letter, in his letters? Very rarely. It's clear they were both Christians, and like we saw, they were formational in the early evangelization of the city. But calling them out by name signals that this conflict was significant enough to draw attention to them personally. Inscripturated, right? And it was significant enough to call out another leader to help them reconcile. So obviously this conflict was so concerning to Epaphroditus that he filled Paul in on it when he came there. And he, my, my gut, okay, is that he was requesting someone to come help. Probably Timothy. But Paul, everybody had abandoned him. Timothy was too useful to him in that moment. He couldn't send Timothy then. So he sent Epaphroditus back. Again, that's a little, that's again, me reading between the lines. We got one line, we got one, we just, when, you, when you read a letter and you're trying to reconstruct what's happening in the background, you've got to be careful. It's like one end of the phone conversation. You don't have the other, you don't have the back end of the phone conversation, so you don't know exactly what's happening. But you can kind of put pieces together. But it's safe to say that instead of joy in Christ, some of these people in the church probably had, had garnered, um, they'd taken sides between these two women, and instead of joy, some of these folks were grumbling against each other. I think that's pretty safe. Paul tells them not to grumble in chapter 2, verse 14, or dispute. And this conflict likely added to the overall unrest and anxiety that the church was experiencing. You ever been a part of a church split? Uh, spiritual temperature is not that great, right? In the midst of perpetual conflict. And what this conflict has d- had done, though, ultimately, was to get two evangelizers to get their eyes off the mission. They had been deceived into thinking that the other person was the enemy instead of remembering the real enemy of their souls and waging war together against him. Instead, they were at odds. They focused in on themselves and what they wanted. In other words, their divisions had distracted them from Christ's mission. And this kind of unrest, this kind of division, this occurs often in churches, doesn't it? And it distracts churches. But it's important to observe that even mature people, even people like Yodia and Syntyche can have conflict. 
as much as we try not to, we will sin against each other in the church. There will be offenses among you guys in Boundless. And we have to learn how to pursue unity. Unity. We need to cultivate humble ways of thinking, like Paul says in chapter 2. We'll need to have emblazoned in our minds Christ's own example, how He humbled Himself to death for our sakes, to serve us. We'll need to learn to help others reconcile, like Paul's calling this other guy to do. And Paul's going to help us do that in this letter, to adopt this mind of Christ. Why? Because the mission's at stake. The mission's at stake right here in Balmas. Right here at Timberlake. If we're focused on what we want, if we're easily offended by each other, if we're going around gossiping about each other, if we're jealous, we're comparing ourselves to each other, guess what we're not doing? We're not focused on seeing others come to Christ. And we're not helping each other grow in Christ. And that is not the good life. That's not the life of joy that Paul's going to present to us in, in the book of Ephesians, or book of Philippians. A life of joy awaits us as we learn to reconcile, as we learn to solve our differences, as we learn to move forward standing firm in one spirit with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Chapter 1, verse 27. So those are some threats that this church was facing. Threats that Paul was writing to address in this letter. And if you read the letter carefully, you can see Paul's heart is that this church continue in the mission keep growing, to continue evangelizing. And all those threats in one way or another are threats away from this focus. They're Satan's attempts to get us off track, to distract us from the mission. And Paul's writing to equip us to make sure that we're motivated to stay on mission. And that's what we're going to see. So, that's a brief sketch of, of what we know about this church and about the context Paul's writing in. It's a church that Paul is endeared to for their generous partnership in the gospel. But it's also a church that's in need of shepherding. And one of the joys of preaching is that I, I never know what all the Lord's going to do, like in an exposition. That's like the exciting part because I'm coming in. And I, I don't know what he's going to do ultimately in my heart. That's probably the most exciting part. And then secondarily, uh, in the lives of you guys. But I know one thing. He wants us to rejoice in his mission. He wants us to be steady during opposition. He wants us to know and avoid the pitfalls and the distractions that abound around us. And by his grace... He will equip us to do this very thing as we study this letter that Paul wrote to the Philippians. So how can you make the most of this study? You could come, start by being here. Um, If you can't make it, you can catch up online. 
Our church has a great uh, our church has a great app, sermon player. Um, it's kept up to date. But I would just encourage you, as Rich said, start reading Philippians right now if you haven't already. And one thing I do that I would encourage you in is to make whatever our next text is, like whatever we're going to study together, you know, next week is going to be the first, I don't know how many, verses of Philippians. Make that text your, part of your meditations. It won't take, won't take a ton of time in your Devo's time. If you don't have a Devo time, start doing it, all right? Set it up in the morning. Read some of these verses. Start thinking about what Paul's saying in these verses. Start meditating on these things leading up to Thursday. And the more you meditate, you'll likely see things that you haven't seen before. And then what's going to happen is you're going to catch more things from my dense sermons. You're ready. You're coming in. You'll probably have questions as you're meditating, as you're thinking. And that's great, too, because you've got a real live pastor that you can come up and ask these questions to. He's been meditating and studying this thing all week. Okay? So I give you like a fraction like a tenth of what's there um, that I could give you. So I would, love to, I would love to interact around your questions if I don't answer them in the sermons. So looking forward to this. Uh, I'm super excited for what the Lord's going to do through our study of this together and to see how he's going to use our group um, for the advance of his kingdom, planting churches, uh, seeing people come to Christ, seeing the church built up through you guys uh, and your gifts. All right, let's pray. Father, we are thankful for your word, as always. We're thankful for how you, you shepherd us. Thankful for just how uh, we can see some of the context of this letter. We see this church's devotion to you and the love that they had for Paul, their radical generosity. And we long to be like this church. And we pray, Lord, that you would equip us uh, to avoid these pitfalls, um, that we would sharpen each other, then you would use us for the sake of gospel ministry uh, right here, right now, today, tonight, tomorrow, for the sake of your kingdom. I pray, Lord, that you would raise up men as you're doing. So many of these kids, Lord, come in here and they tell me that they don't have a healthy church within 50 miles of their hometown. And Father, you've given us your truth. You've given us the gifts of your spirit. You're raising up people from within. We pray, Lord, that you would help us equip these folks and send them out to America and to the nations to see your mission advance. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen.